You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jaffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. We're going to actually talk about Jesus' final words to his followers. And uh, there's kind of two places that we see that. First of all, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. This is known as the Great Commission. This is what Jesus says to his followers. These are familiar words if you've been around church. He says this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are Jesus' final instructions. And, and the great news for all of us here is that we are very clear on what our mission is. All right? As followers of Jesus, we don't have ambiguity about what our purpose and mission in life is. Now, how we do that is going to be distinct for each person. It's going to be distinct for each church. But our instructions, this is very clear what we're to do. We're to make disciples. And every church that I attend has a mission statement. I know that you guys have been talking about that, but every church's mission statement is some, usually some combination of the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors, yourself, and the great commission, which is these words we just read here, to make disciples of all nations. And I know that um, I've been talking to Pastor Jordan that kind of the framing for that for you is that hope is here to know, grow, and to serve. I also know that this is a a church community that has a heart for the ends of the earth. I know that because I know some of your stories. I know Josh just got back from a a trip. I think it was to South Africa. Correct me if I'm wrong there. But if you go on the Hope Fellowship website, there's a tab that says the world. And there's all these different purposes and missions and partnerships that you guys have with Nicaragua, South Africa, Guatemala, and even locally with things like Threads of Hope. The other place that Jesus left instructions to us is we find in recorded in the book of acts and um, this is going to be the primary space that we hang out in today and this is acts 1 8 we're going to look at part of this verse today and kind of expand on it acts 1 8 says this but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth This is the birth of the church. Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. Not much time would pass. Pentecost Sunday would come. The Holy Spirit would be given to us and all of us who believe in Jesus as Savior now have the full access to the Holy Spirit. And I grew up in a a Baptist tradition. And so we used to kind of describe the Trinity be like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? That was kind of how it was. But I want to tell you today that we have such a gift that God has given to us, both in the mission field that he set before us and in the power that he's given us to accomplish that mission. And so today we're going to look at Acts 1-8, but I primarily want to focus on two things. First of all is the first part of the verse, the power that God has given us. And the second thing is the place and the people that God has put into close proximity to you and to me. And that's what we're going to look at together today. Would you pray with me? God, you've given us this promise 
that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You've given us the power of the Spirit, and you've given us the opportunity to be your witnesses in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And God, I pray that today, in these, uh, uh, these moments that you have us together, that you would just reveal to us the implications of this. We thank you for your word. It is living and active. It's what we build our lives upon. It's what we build our churches upon. And we thank you, God, that we have full access to you because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. It's in his name, the matchless name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. My family currently lives in central New Hampshire, Hooksit, New Hampshire. So I like to say Hooksit is known for its toll plaza and its liquor store. All right, that is uh, Hooksit, New Hampshire. And... Uh, um, we moved there in 2019, and we have been, uh, had the privilege for almost a decade of being a multi-generational home. My mom and dad, some of you actually know my parents, Rick and Ginny, um, they have lived with us since 2013. And part of that is that my dad uh, has had a seizure issue and has been disabled uh, since his mid-40s. And uh, he's, not, he's able to work some, but he's not able to work a full-time job. And it works out in my favor pretty dramatically because the way that we have kind of arranged our lives is this. I buy the toys and dad uses them, all right? That's how it works. So I have a really nice John Deere tractor. I have been on it a couple of times. Um, the grandchildren have had many rides around the yard. I also bought a really nice snowblower, and um, I don't use it that often. I'm very fortunate. Most of us haven't used our snowblowers much this winter. Uh, but there happened to be a day this winter when my dad was away, which is pretty rare, and it snowed. And so as the man of the house, it was my responsibility to go down to the garage. And I had to remember how to start the snowblower. And I did not remember how to start the snowblower. And so I'm all bundled up. I got the garage door open, but I'm bundled up because it's a cold day. It's, it is still snowing. And I'm looking at the snowblower and I'm like, I, I mean, I know, I'm, you know, I, I feel like my man card will be questioned with the rest of this story. <laughs> And I, I fully acknowledge that, but I want to say, like, I, I thought I kind of had a clue what was going on. I mean, there's a pull cord, right? That's got to be part of the process. And uh, there's, there's a key. I'm sure that has to be turned one way or the other. There's a couple of knobs. I know one is the sort of the throttle. It's, you know, kind of worn off. I'm not sure which direction that goes in. And so I get there, and I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of, when I, when I face a problem like this, I tend to be kind of a calm, like, let's just, okay, logically, there's only so many combinations of which ways these knobs can turn. And so I kind of looked at it like an escape room. That was sort of my, my mentality. And so I, I'm working at it, and I turn the knob, do the other thing, and I pull the, the cord and it does not turn over. And so that scenario, I just start playing all the different variables of all the different things uh, that could possibly cause the snowblower not to start. And so this goes on for two or three minutes. And then I start getting a little warm, and so I shed a layer of clothes, and the jacket comes off, and the hat comes off, and um, I think this is all captured on our ring cam, so if you'd like to watch it, Bethany, you can go see that. And um, I mean, I think it probably was like three or four minutes, but to me, it felt like a half an hour. Um, and uh, finally, I just had this random thought, like, I never checked the gas tank. <laughs> I open up the gas tank, it is bone dry, which is not like my dad. The one thing I want to give credit for is like, my dad would never leave the snowblower without gas in it. And so sure enough, I drop some gas into the, the snowblower and on that first pull, 
it goes right, it starts going. And, uh, you know, my foolishness here serves as a reminder to all of us today of this, that sometimes I feel like we try to live our lives. We might know who God is. We might have responded to the gospel. We might be thankful that we have access to him for heaven someday. But if you look at our lives functionally, the way that we actually live our lives, it's almost as if God has given us a great snowblower and we're like, I'd rather shovel. Or God has given us a great snowblower. He's given us a great resource. And we're like, we're not going to bother to check the fuel. We're just going to push the snowblower around, which would be hard in my driveway because it's on a hill. But that is sometimes how we do. Sometimes we miss the starting point of God's promise to us. When we try to function in our lives without the provision and the power of the Spirit of God. We're worse than an engine without fuel. I was talking to one of my ministry friends the other day, and I was talking about how, you know, sometimes the way that I live my life is that I'm thankful that I come to God because of his grace, but then I spend the rest of my life in my own strength trying to pay it back. And that is not how God designed for you and me to live. It's kind of our first big idea today is this, that God's calling requires God's power. God's calling requires God's power. The purposes of God in your life are only possible by the power of God. The purpose of God in your life, in your world, for you and for all of us, the purposes of God for Hope Fellowship are only possible by the power of God. And they will only be fulfilled by the power of the Spirit of God. The engine of mission in our lives and for the world, it does not run without the Spirit of God. But I think I need to take inventory, and each of us need to take inventory on this point here. Do we live lives? Do we orient our lives? Do we structure our lives so that we don't actually really need God? We might believe in God, but the practical outliving of our theology the praxis of our lives, the way that we live out the things that we believe. Is that reflected in the way that we live? Often we structure our existence in a way that does not require dependence on the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, some of us are living lives of head knowledge of God, but functional atheism in the way that we live our lives. We have a facade of morality. We're good, moral people. We like the parts of the Bible that say this is the way that we should live. But when it comes to living on mission for God, as God's witnesses is what he called us to do, I don't know that we need him. We avoid hard things. Maybe our prayers, if we really inventory it in our prayers, if we boil the sap of our prayers down, we would realize that the things that we pray for the most are for God to take care of us, to protect us, to put a hedge of protection around us. Those aren't bad prayers, but that shouldn't be the whole of the Christian life. Somebody said it this way. I think it's, it's pretty insightful. If God answered every single one of your prayers, would the world change or just your life? If God answered everything that you prayed for, would it just make your life better or would it actually impact the people around you, in your neighborhood, in your community, and in your workplace and world. We should not be surprised when we do not feel or sense, it's not about feeling, but we should sense 
and encounter God throughout our lives. Not every moment, not every moment is going to feel like, wow, God, you're just so close to me. That is not the Christian life. But we should live our lives in such a way that there are moments of faith where God just shows up in our pain and in our courage. There's an old illustration that kind of came to mind as I was preparing this message. And uh, I have, I'm going to share in just a second a, a short video clip. And this was a lot cheaper than convincing uh, Jordan to get me a balance beam to come up on the stage. But this is an old Francis Chan clip before Francis Chan was well known. And it, you'll, you'll notice the grainy, it's kind of a grainy clip because this is like YouTube 2002, all right? It's an old, old clip. But I think that this kind of drives home for us a little bit of what I'm talking about here today. Would you check out the screens? Whatever, you know, you just, there's so much instability, so much that we don't understand, that, that we don't know. For me, growing up, it was, uh, a lot of you guys know, my mom died giving birth to me, and my dad remarried, then my stepmom died in a car accident when I was nine, then my dad got married again, then my dad died of cancer when I was 12, and so I'm in junior high, my mom's dead, my stepmom's dead, my dad's dead, the only close relatives I had were my, my aunt and uncle, George and Sandra. And then when I was in high school, they got in a fight, and my uncle George shot and killed my aunt, and then stuck the gun to his own head, killed himself. So I'm 16 years old, and this is life to me, going, man, what's next? Everything seems to be falling apart, and we get a little worried, we get a little scared. And this is what Christians do, you know, they try to serve God, but then things get a little rocky. And things get a little unstable. And so we go, okay, that was nuts. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to live like that. Let me, uh, let me hold on. And this is your routine. This is what so many people do. They go, you know what? I'm not going to try anything crazy. I'm just going to sit here. And uh, I'm just going to hold on. And uh, this is what you look like. You just go... Uh, this is what people do. You know what? I'm just going to have my nice little family. We're just going to... Um, you know, we're just going to keep to ourselves. We're going to live in a gated community. I'm going to homeschool my kids, make them wear helmets everywhere. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm not going to let them outside because sun has bad rays. I'm going to, um, you know, just on and on and on. And you just live your life in the safety of, I don't want to do anything crazy for God. I just, I just want to, you know, go to church on Sundays and maybe give like 2%. Um, and uh, maybe serve, help the nursery, because I feel guilty. And then you do this your whole life, and then you, you go, your greatest prayer is like, God, you know what? I would love to die in my sleep and not even feel it, and then just go up to heaven. And so you want to die like this, just in your sleep, ooh, right in the middle of a dream, good dream, the dream you're going to heaven, and you don't even feel it. And then suddenly you wake up, you stand before the judge, and you go, Now, if, uh, could you imagine, could you imagine watching the Olympics, you know, and some girl does that, just gets up there, starts straddling the thing, and then steps off and goes, what is the judge supposed to do on the card? You see, and to me, I go, man, that's the routine that so many Christians are headed for. That's the routine, the boring, I do nothing crazy because I don't want to fall. 
I, I, that's the routine that they're going to live. And then one day it's going to be a shock because they're going to step off that balance beam and realize they're standing before the judge. They're standing before the judge and you think he's going to look at that routine and go, wow, well done. Well done. You lived the safest life possible. You didn't slip. You didn't fall. See, that's not the life that God's called us to. That's where the majority will head. But I don't want to go where the majority goes. I think about the words that we sang this morning. With my life laid down, I surrender now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after me. It's an easy thing to sing. It's a difficult reality to live into. If you took away the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and almost nothing would change, then maybe what you have is a religious supplement and you're not living in the power of the Spirit of God. If we look at every revival, every missions movement, every evangelism breakthrough, every disciple making wave. It was women and men like you and me who did things only possible by the power of God. Every church that I visit, if you drive back to the genesis of the church, and some of you in this room are probably start, part of the start of this church or part of pivotal moments in the life of this church, there were people who stepped up, who prayed hard, who dared to do things that other people wouldn't do, who gave generously when other people wouldn't give, and we today get to sit in this space here because of their generosity, their faithfulness, and their courage. And the question for you and me is, where God has set us, what has he called us to do and to be about? The task of Acts 1-8 remains unfinished. Can you imagine how crazy this moment would have been to the disciples? Jesus, who they'd walked with, who they'd learned with for three years, they went to the seminary of Jesus, got to see miracles happen. They all, in some way, abandoned him at his most critical moment, yet he called them back in. And then he says, all right, team, it's your turn. I trust you with my mission here on earth. And we, as believers today, are caught up into that same mission. We are entrusted with the mission of the whole world. This is the invitation of God for us. And I'm praying that God would give the people in this room, young and old, holy ambition, empathy for others, courageous generosity, passion for the gospel, and that God would call you to take risks in his name. Friends, we have this treasure, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the surpassing greatness is of God and not of us. God's calling requires God's power. That's the first big idea today. The Gospel of Luke is really part one of a two-part anthology penned by the doctor, Luke. And Luke, as he writes these two narratives, first, the Gospel of Luke, and second, Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, as some of us has known it, is very intentionally writing a two-part narrative. The main character in Luke's Gospel, it's Jesus of Nazareth. That is the main character. The main character in Acts it's actually not the apostles. It's not Paul. The main character in Acts is the Holy Spirit. Everything in the Gospel of Luke, if you watch the arc of the story, is if you read the Gospel of Luke, you will see it slowly moving towards what? Moving towards Jerusalem. Jesus is on this mission. 
He's making disciples. We know that the apex of the story will end on a hill outside the city in an empty tomb, but the whole narrative is marching towards Jerusalem. And then in, the, in, in Acts, what we actually see is the opposite, that out from Jerusalem to the Gentiles, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, this mission of Jesus is moving. And both stories intersect right at this point that we're looking at here today. Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. These are not disconnected realities, nor is it sequential or selective. And what I mean by that is this. This commissioning where Jesus says to his followers, go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth. It's not a pick list that we get to choose from. And it's also not sequential. It's actually a both and. It says and Samaria, and Judea and all Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But I think sometimes when we focus on this passage, the emphasis, you've probably heard this passage most often at missions conferences, right? When we're talking about reaching the ends of the earth. And that is definitely God's heart. But today I want to talk about one of the easiest places to ignore, which is the place that we live and call home. Our Jerusalem and our Judea. Our near, our home, our people. And the question is this, where is my Jerusalem and my Judea? Where's the starting point, the place that God has set me the place and the region that God has. We live in the most mobile generation in the history of this planet. Many of our grandparents only went overseas because they were serving in a war. And their grandparents often never traveled outside of their home country. In just over one lifetime, travel from London to New York went from three months to eight hours. Three months to eight hours. Thank you, God, for letting me live in this time. I am very much thankful for that. We live in this reality. There's words in cultures like wanderlust. Like, you gotta follow all these Instagram people that are traveling all over the world. They have FOMO, fear of missing out. You can go anywhere that you wanna go and you can take a fantastic photo for everyone to see instantly. But so often we miss something right in front of us and all around us. Something that God designed us for, a place called home. Your place, your people. Friends, an essential aspect of your calling is to a place, to a people and to a place. An essential aspect. In your story, the way God designed you, he made you. He has called you to a particular time in history to a particular place, and to a particular people. God's story set in the context of your story, unique and divinely distinct. What if we are wasting or ignoring the opportunity before us because we ignore the power of our place and the priority of loving people that are near to us? Not the places we can fly to, but the people that we interact with every day. Not the people that we travel far to share the gospel with, which is important, but the people who will see you, live near you, know your story. And what if we prayed in such a way that God would break our hearts and unleash our witness for the people nearest to us? I want to consider the reasons why this is difficult. And this is sort of self-reflective. I've been thinking about my neighbors and my neighborhoods and my region 
and I've been thinking about the, the things that make it difficult for me to be a witness in this space, and some of these things may connect with you. Why do we ignore our Jerusalem and our Judea? And I have just a couple of points here to think about. The first one is this. We are like fish who forget about water, right? A fish doesn't think about water. If there's no water in the tank, the fish is thinking about water, right? But if there's water in the tank, the fish does not think about water. Last spring, Bethy and I got to travel to California, and we were serving a ministry that has started an outpost of a location in New England, but has a long-established, large ministry in California. And they do incredible work, gospel-centered ministry, very, very effective, very, very successful ministry. And they've been in New England with this outpost grappling with contextualization. They've been struggling with what these weird New Englanders, right, our, our people. So we were kind of brought over there. Partially, our purpose was to kind of explain to us you're crazy people, all right? That was sort of what we were there to do. And we were in this pan, we were on this panel, we're on stage, we're sitting down, and they asked us about, okay, tell us about New Englanders. And Bethany had just a great insight. She says, you know, we don't really think about this very much because this is the water that we swim in every day. Right? People who come from far, they, they have some observations. But for those of us who live here, it's just the place that we live. It's our everyday reality. When we go cross-culturally, we immediately realize we're like a fish out of water or in different water. And the, the challenge here first is to recognize the water that we swim in. Do you know your neighbor's names? Do you know their stories? Do you know their struggles? Do you know their greatest joys? Do you know their greatest pain? Do you think about the reality of the people around you. In order to understand your community, you need to, to reach your community, you need to understand your community. We need to pray for our Jerusalem and that God will reveal a burden for the place that we are. So the first thing is, we're like a fish, we forget about water. The second one is this, we can find it safer to share cross-culturally than to live counterculturally. We can find it safer to share the gospel cross-culturally than to actually live counterculturally, right where God has set us. You know how I know this is true? I can tell you my own life. I'm not really a big dancer, but I've led mission trips to Mexico, and when they do the VBS thing, I am like busting a groove, all right? <laughs> I have no shame. I have done things on mission trips that I am very embarrassed by in the name of Jesus. But how many things have I done in the last six weeks in the place that God has put me, that make me uncomfortable, that I might even be embarrassed by, to be a witness for Jesus. In just over a month, uh, Bethy and I have the privilege we're going to West Africa. We'll spend some time in Togo, which is the birthplace of voodoo, one of the darkest places in the world where the spiritual strongholds, which we'll talk about in a minute, are very obvious and evident. It's witch doctors, right? There are literal witch doctors with houses and huts, and they have their idols or actual idols that you can see. And what we're seeing God do through the work of the gospel in Togo is a multi-generational native disciple-making movement. So missionaries went there, but now we're seeing people from Togo planting churches and making disciples. And just like many of the mission groups that you work for, one of the best shifts that has happened in the last generation in terms of missions is that we have tried our very best, not perfectly, but to shed sort of an imperialistic form of missions which says we, you need to be like Western church people. And we've said, no, no, no. God has equipped every nation to reach every nation. And we're going to go there. We're going to introduce the gospel. But the mission and the purpose is to raise up local people who know Jesus, who can pastor and plant churches. 
Same thing applies right where we are. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is we can find it to share our faith to people that we have no investment in and no long-term relationship with? What does it look like to have a crazy, dancing type of courage to share the gospel with the people who are nearest to us? Shouldn't we be more passionate for the people that we actually interact with every day in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, at the ball field? Every one of them is a soul loved by God. We are children of a culture that desperately needs a witness at a time when other nations are actually sending missionaries to the United States. We need to wake up and recognize the need to share the gospel right where we are. The last big idea is this. We must deal with the idols, the ideals, the idols, and the spiritual strongholds of our culture. What are the ideals, the highest values? What are the idols, the other gods, and the spiritual strongholds of the place that we call home, our Jerusalem? I challenge us to take note, to listen, to think, to learn to articulate the unique ideals, idols, and spiritual strongholds of our Jerusalem. Let me speak to some of those. I spent 20 years in ministry in this region. I just want to share with you a few things that I've observed about people in the Northeast. One of those ideals, there's good and bad with it. Not everything here is like evil and good, but New Englanders often have a very high first wall to relationship and a very low second wall. It's very difficult to get, in, to get invited over somebody's house. It's very difficult to break through the first layer of relationship with people. They are slow to trust. We are slow to trust, right? Let's not say they. But once you make a friend, you have a friend for life. The first time my, my neighbor borrowed a tool from me, I was like, God, thank you for doing a work of revival in my neighborhood. <laughs> that is a good thing. And New Englanders, you don't have to wonder if they like your idea or your worldview, right? There's not a lot of mystery. If you tell somebody around here that you follow Jesus or you're a Christian, they're not like, I mean, other parts of the country, I was just in Jacksonville last week, right? Bless your heart. Now, there's no bless your heart. It's more like you're an idiot and stop wasting my time, right? That is New England. I, it's kind of a gift to us, right? In many ways. One of the ideals and idols of our region is achievement. That's why there's so many Ivy League institutions in our region. Education is not just valued, it is worshipped. It could also be achievement in the marketplace that we would want to have our own business or do different things. Again, not bad things, but they are some of the ideals of our region. Most people in New England do not know an authentic Jesus follower, all right? When you interact with people, you often are the only authentic Jesus follower that they are ever going to, inter but hopefully not ever, but they are going to interact with. Most people's perspective in New England of what a Christian is, is built on some terrible mix of the Catholic Church and cable news, all right? That is what people, that's forming what they think of it. You want to know how I know this is true? One of our neighbors, she got to meet our pastor, all right? So we were having a campfire. I don't remember the scenario of it. But he met our pastor, met some of his, our, his family was over our, fa our house. And not too long after that interaction, she, she pulled, us, pulled me aside. I don't know if it was Bethany or I, but the story holds either way. And she says, how does your priest have kids? <laughs> well, how do you want us to answer that question? You want to add the, uh, no. Um, but that was, it was such a revealing thing, a good reminder to us. Like there's actually not even a category 
in a lot of the people that we interact with for the worldview and the perspective that we have. We have to remember that. I, living here in New Hampshire, just one state in New England, the church I live in, uh, that I attend in Concord did a survey, I think it was like three or four years ago. There are 60 municipalities, 60 communities in New Hampshire that have zero gospel preaching churches. Zero. Many of our towns in the Northeast, if you were to look at them through the lens of international mission standards for unreached people groups, UPGs, typically an unreached people group is a group of people where the gospel penetration, the number of people who would say that they're authentic Jesus followers would fall between 2 and 4%. Most communities, not all, many communities in New England would be considered unreached people groups. My friend Chris planted a church in Vermont, and um, they'd met in 11 different locations and been chased out of a number of places because of the fact that they were a church and they just didn't really want to have them hanging around. And he tells the story of going to the state to get the permits for this new building. They finally got to the point, they had some land, they were going to build a building. And they went to the state and uh, one of the ladies in the office, I always picture her being like the old curmudgeon lady at the state office. You know, that's just my interpretation of what it was. But um, she said this, she said, we have not had a new church building in decades. It might be 50 years since we've had a new church building. That's right across the river in Vermont. For those of us who are Christians, many of us have been told, as I was from childhood, this. Have you ever heard this before? We're the frozen chosen, right? Frozen chosen. And it's usually said in jest, and it gets that kind of chuckle or that response. But here's the thing. I actually think that the frozen chosen is one of the ways the enemy has built a spiritual stronghold into the church. That we've heard... And I've heard since I was a little kid that this is tough soil, that it's hard ground, and I've believed, as many of us have, the lie that because it is hard, it will always be hard. Because it is lost, it will always be lost. Because there are not many Christians here, I don't think my neighbor could actually have an encounter with God and be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I'm not going to take the risk of sharing the truth of Jesus. I call this the spiritual poverty mindset. The spiritual poverty mindset, and it is pervasive. And honestly, I give my life to try to fight back this darkness. Friends, don't you remember? We have the power of the spirit of the living God. We have the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We may not have the biggest budgets. We may not have the biggest buildings. We may not have the coolest services, but we have Jesus and we have everything that we need. And I don't know for sure if God will do another great awakening in my lifetime in New England. We're, we are the birthplace of multiple great awakenings. But I can tell you one thing with all of my heart, that God did a great awakening in my life. He took what was dead in sin and made it alive in Christ. And I am transformed because of who God is and what he has done for me. And I believe with all my heart that my neighbors who may not even have a category for a Christian could someday be leading a Sunday school class in my church. And that is the type of courage. And I need this reminder as much as anyone else here. This is my Jerusalem. This is our Judea. God has woven into your story, into your calling, into your passion, a place and a people. 
For some of us, that will be a distant tribe. And if God calls you to go to the ends of the earth, then go boldly and we will send you and we will support you. But for most of us here, God has showed us to show up at work tomorrow. And God has called us to show up in the classroom. And God has called us to be his witnesses, empowered by the Spirit to the people who are near to us. New England can be transformed by God. Jaffrey can be transformed by God. And I dare you to orient your life in such a way that you're not clinging to the beam, but you're living on a mission field. That between my feet and the places I go, that God has called me to be his ambassador, to be his witness, to have his ministry of reconciliation, to bring the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah reminds, that that would be our thing. And so I want our prayer, my prayer, your prayer to be this. God, break my heart with what breaks yours in my Jerusalem and Judea.